listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 11 verses 1 to 15. Let's hear God's word. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel, Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people. And all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were three hundred sorry, the people of Israel were three hundred thousand, and the men of Judah thirty thousand. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. And the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, Here at Trinity, we're throughout this calendar year having a a three-part sermon series working through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Uh, And today we're looking at the passage we just read from 1 Samuel 11. 
uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are books that document the history of God's people in a particular era during the time of the Old Testament when God's plan for his people had a particular focus on the nation of Israel and during which time Israel's first king was installed, a man named Saul. Now, one of the defining features of God's people during this time, as you'll know if you've been with us throughout the first 10 chapters of 1 Samuel, was that life was pretty miserable for them. Misery was experienced by God's people in abundance. Some of it was, to a degree, caused by circumstances outside of the people's control. There were other nations bordering Israel that were hostile towards Israel and wanted to wipe Israel out. Those who'd been appointed to lead Israel, too, brought suffering upon the people of Israel by refusing to lead them as God had instructed them to. Yet some of the misery that God's people suffered was self-inflicted. They'd rejected God's authority over them and they'd insisted that God appoint a king to govern them, even though God had warned that appointing a king at this point in time would not go well for the people. And their rejection of God, their insistence that they knew better and could better oversee their own lives, only led to more and more misery. It was a miserable time for God's people. Today's passage in 1 Samuel 11, though, is all about deliverance. It's all about being delivered, being rescued from, being brought out of misery. And it has a lot to teach us, not only about how God's people were delivered back then, but also how we are delivered today. So I want us to focus on two things this afternoon. Firstly, why we need deliverance. And secondly, how we get it. Firstly, we see in 1 Samuel 11 the reason why we need deliverance. The reason why we need to be delivered or rescued or brought out of our miserable circumstances. In verse 1, we're told of another outside attack launched against Israel, this time from a people called the Ammonites. Read in verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. Jabesh-Gilead, or Jabesh, as it's referred to later on in the passage, was a city within Israel. The people of Jabesh were God's people. And the city came under siege from the Ammonites, led by the Ammonite king, Nahash. For a city to be besieged was for it to be surrounded by the enemy. And for it to be surrounded by the enemy meant that the clock was ticking for the people of that city. No essential supplies would have been able to get to the people, and none of the people were able to get out. Here was another instance of misery experienced by God's people, this time in Jabesh-Gilead at the hands of the Ammonites. And their misery spoke to them of their need for deliverance. It testified to them that they needed someone to deliver them from their suffering. Now, You and I don't find ourselves in the position that the people of Jabesh found themselves in back then. We're not under siege. Our supplies have not been cut off. We're not hostages in our own city. Although we should remember that there are people around the world who do still face those circumstances. The the ongoing war in Ukraine has probably brought that closer to home for many of us. But although we don't find ourselves in that specific position, we do know what it is to encounter misery. We do know what it is to find life difficult. To feel as though life is miserable. 
to experience hardship and suffering in a thousand different ways. And when those moments in life intensify, when the heat is turned up on the misery we experience, our misery also speaks to us of our need for deliverance. Often we instinctively know, even if we can't articulate it, that we need someone or something to deliver us, to rescue us, to bring us out of our misery and turn our life around. And yet, our need for deliverance is not only due to circumstances outside of us. We need to be delivered from our misery, not only because misery is thrust upon us from the outside, but also because we inflict it upon ourselves. And we see this highlighted in the way that the people of Jabesh respond to their misery. Their response is reported in verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. Now, it's easy to miss the significance of this response, and it is significant. When the men of Jabesh ask Nahash, the Ammonite king, to make a treaty with them in return for their service, they're not merely surrendering to him. In requesting a treaty to be established between Nahash and the people of Jabesh, the people of Jabesh were asking Nahash to become their king, to rule over them. It was a common result of ancient warfare. The stronger nation acts aggressively towards the weaker nation, And the weaker nation, knowing that it can't compete on the battlefield, enters into a binding agreement with the king of the stronger nation to become his subjects and serve him in exchange for terms of peace. It's what's referred to as a covenant, a binding agreement between two parties with certain stipulations laid out. It was common at the time. Yet what is significant when it comes to the people of Jabesh asking to enter into a covenant with Nahash and the Ammonites was that the people of Jabesh were already in a covenant arrangement. And their covenant was not with a particular king, but was with God. The people of Jabesh were part of the people of God, and at the heart of what makes the people of God distinct from all other people is that they have entered into a particular covenant agreement with God. The people of Jabesh here ask Nahash to protect them from harm in exchange for them serving him. But God had already promised that he would protect and deliver them. And the people of Jabesh Jabesh had promised to serve him. God had made a treaty with the people of Jabesh and he'd entered into a covenant with them. And yet here they are in the face of difficulty, turning not to God, but turning to Nahash. In fact, the significance of the people's request here is seen even more clearly when we realise the meaning of the name Nahash. Meanings of names are important in 1 Samuel. Both the name Samuel and the name Saul mean to ask. Only the name Samuel means ask of God, whereas God is absent from the meaning of Saul's name. Reflects the fact that the people had insisted on Saul being appointed against God's instruction. Names are important in in 1 Samuel. And the name Nahash is no different. If you looked up a commentary on 1 Samuel or an expert in the Hebrew language, then you'd find that Nahash means serpent. What's so significant about that? 
A serpent plays a significant role in the Bible. In the beginning of Genesis, we're told of how God created everything and placed the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. The world at that time was perfect. There was no misery to be delivered from. And God had entered into a covenant with Adam and Eve as their creator. He'd promised to be their God and he'd required of them that they listen to him and obey him by not eating from the fruit of one particular tree in the garden. And in that context, in Genesis 3, a serpent appears. The serpent opposes God by telling his people, Adam and Eve, that God was withholding something from them. Although life for Adam and Eve was was free from misery, the serpent tried to persuade them that there was something out there that would truly fulfill them. That it could be found by eating the fruit from this one particular tree and that God was keeping this fulfillment from them and instructing them not to eat of it. And you know how it went. Adam and Eve listened to the word of the serpents rather than the word of God. And in doing so, they did two things. They broke the covenant that God had entered into with them. And they entered into a covenant with the serpent. The serpent promised them fulfillment in exchange for listening to him. In exchange for obeying his terms. And Adam and Eve trusted the serpent's word. One theologian named Herman Babbing summed it up like this. He said, by his transgression... Man has departed from obedience to God, has left his fellowship, and has sought out the friendship of Satan and entered into contract with him. Now, just as we don't find ourselves in the same position that the people of Jabesh found themselves in, neither do you and I find ourselves in the same position that Adam and Eve were in. We're not in a perfect environment as they were, we're not faced with a decision that will have repercussions for the entire human race. But we still at times act like Adam and Eve did. We often believe that God is withholding something from us. When we know what God teaches in the Bible about how we are to live in relation to him and how we are to live in relation to others and how we are to order our own lives. When we know what God teaches in that regard and yet we choose to live contrary to what God teaches in the Bible... What we're doing is in our hearts believing that if we could just be free from those restrictions, then we would live fulfilled lives. We're acting like Adam and Eve. And significantly in doing so, instead of seeking to live in covenant with God, we're seeking to enter into a covenant with the one who opposes God. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what the people of Jabesh Gilead seek. And the people of Jabesh Gilead seek their deliverance, not with God, but with God's enemy. The enemy of God's people, Nahash, the serpent king of Ammon. They ask him to rescue them and to fulfill their unfulfilled desires, as it were. The question then becomes, can God's enemy provide this deliverance that we need? This deliverance that the people of Jabesh seek, can Nahash provide it? And the answer is a resounding no. Because just look at the results of Jabesh Gilead's request for a treaty with Nahash. In verse 2 of our passage, 
Uh, Nahash agrees to a treaty in principle, but then he lays out his terms. We read in verse 2. On this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. His terms are brutal. He'll grant Jabesh Gilead relief and peace and withdraw his troops, provided that all the men of Jabesh bring themselves forward to have their right eye gouged out. Uh, scholars who study ancient warfare suggest that to gouge out the right eye of a man was to disable him from fighting in the army. Uh, the practice was at the time for soldiers to go into battle holding their shields across their left eye. And so their right eye would be looking out on the battlefields. Without their right eye, the men of Jabesh would never be able to form an army and rise up and revolt against their Ammonite master. But it wasn't only a political and a military move from Nahash, because at the end of verse 2 we're told that he wanted to bring disgrace on all Israel. He wanted to disgrace and humiliate God's people. Which only underlines the fact that he is an enemy of God. Because an enemy of God's people is an enemy of God. In response... The people of Jabesh request a period of seven days to find someone within Israel who will deliver them in such a way that, at the very least, doesn't involve the men losing their right eyes, which is understandable. Uh, Nahash agrees to that seven-day period, presumably because he's not at all concerned about being overcome by Israel's army. And the opening scene of the passage, the first paragraph in our order of worship, ends with messengers from Jabesh reporting their misery to the people of Gibeah, another Israelite territory, and the end of, at the end of verse 4, we're told that all the people wept aloud. It's worth pausing at this point to recognise that this is the result of all of our attempts to be delivered by anyone or anything other than God. It ends in weeping. We need deliverance. We need a deliverer. Because our own attempts to rescue ourselves and turn our lives around and find the fulfillment we long for only end ultimately in more misery. Now, some of you will have heard of an American philosopher, maybe heard him quoted at various points, a university professor named David Foster Wallace, uh, who is an author, published several books, he professed to be an atheist. And not so long ago, he sadly took his own life. But at one point in his career, he gave a commencement speech at a graduation ceremony to university students graduating and heading out into the world of work. And in the speech, he reflected on the fact that, practically speaking, in real terms, there's not really such a thing as atheism. And his reason for such a view is that when you stop and think about it, every single one of us worships something. Uh, that is to say, we each make a god out of something or someone. We might say in 1 Samuel 11 terms, every single one of us looks to someone or something for deliverance. And partway through his speech, Wallace said this. He said, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And Wallace then, in the speech, reflects on the different things that people choose to worship, in his words. 
the different things that we might look to to deliver us from our misery, we might say. And he points out that what we in our culture commonly worship today, what we commonly centre our lives on and live for, each thing will ultimately, in his words, eat you alive. Here's what he said. He said, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen by others as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now, it's worth going away and pondering that thought. But but here's where I think it's particularly useful for us today. Each one of us instinctively knows that we need delivering from the misery we experience. Whether it's circumstances that are inflicted upon us, whether it's self-inflicted misery, or whether it's just a confusing mixture of the two. And yet, knowing that, we so easily look to things other than God to provide that deliverance, to provide rescue from our frustration and to provide that fulfillment we long for. And what David Foster Wallace, a professing atheist, was helpfully pointing out was that seeking our deliverance in anything other than God only leads to more misery. The people of Jabesh, in the midst of their misery, seek out a covenant with God's enemy, and it ends in weeping. The same is true for us whenever we seek deliverance outside of God. Which leaves us needing to ask the question, how can we get the deliverance we need then? This is why we need deliverance. Secondly, much more briefly, how do we get it? The first thing we need to say is that it is God who provides deliverance for his people. It's not provided by our own cleverness. It's not available with some outside provider who we can go and find. It's provided by God himself. That's the emphasis of the rest of our passage in 1 Samuel. In verse 5, uh, we're told that Saul heard the weeping of God's people in Gibeah. And the rest of the middle paragraph in our order of worship, verses 6 to 11, is all about Saul acting in response to the people's weeping. In verse 7, he begins to assemble an army by killing some cattle, some oxen, cutting them up and sending the parts throughout Israel with the message, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. It was an act that referenced a graphic act that had taken place previously in Israel's history. And it was effective in rousing the men for battle. 330,000 of them gathered as one man, we're told in verse 8. Meanwhile, the message is sent to the people of Jabesh Gilead in verse 9. Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. The people of Jabesh, in turn, communicate to Nahash their intention to give themselves up to him on the following day. But that surrender never materialises. 
Because in verse 11, we're told of Saul's great military victory over the Ammonites. It's a positive start to Saul's reign as Israel's king. But what is emphasized in the passage is not Saul's action, but God's. Because back in verse 6, we're told Saul was stirred to act and deliver the people as a result of the Spirit of God rushing upon him. Again, this phrase is a reference to previous deliverances God had accomplished for his people throughout the book of Judges. And the point is that God, by his Spirit, leads the deliverance. Saul himself, he understands this. In verse 12, there's a proposal to go and find and put to death those men who at the end of the last chapter were rebellious against Saul as king. But Saul doesn't approve the proposal in verse 13. Instead, he says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul knows who it is who's delivered the people. Ultimately, it wasn't him. How do we get the deliverance we need? We recognize first that it's God who provides it. Saul couldn't have mustered Israel's troops himself. There were already doubts among the people about his suitability to be king. He was not a highly esteemed and experienced military commander. But God, as his people's true military commander and chief, the one who is able to come to his people's aid, he anointed Saul with his spirit and ensured that through Saul's actions his people would be delivered. The deliverance we need comes ultimately from God. If we fail to recognize and remember that, we will forever be prone to seeking deliverance by means of a thousand different methods, each of which is ill-equipped to deliver us and will only end in weeping. Have you recognized this yet? Have you stopped trying to figure out a plan of deliverance for yourself? Have you received the deliverance that God offers to you? Are you trusting in him to deliver you from every misery you encounter? God is the one who provides deliverance. But we can also say something about how God provides it. Because when you take a step back from the detail of 1 Samuel 11, here's what you see is the the big picture. God delivers his people through his chosen king by his spirit. That is to say, whilst God is the deliverer, he uses particular means to accomplish his deliverance. He delivers through his king, Saul, in this instance. And the king is anointed by his spirit. Which is a picture of what God would do on a much broader scale through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear that ultimately it is the Lord Jesus who is God's chosen king. He is born, we're told, with royal ancestry, as a descendant of the king who had replaced Saul, King David. And the Bible is also clear that the Lord Jesus is anointed with the Spirit, as we read earlier from Luke 4. He is God's chosen king, delivering his people in the power of the Spirit. And he delivers people who, just like the people of Jabesh Gilead, just like Adam and Eve, entered into a covenant with God's enemy. People like you and me. 
He delivers us from the misery that is ours as a result of us rejecting God and entering into a contract with God's enemies. In Genesis 3, again, immediately after his people, Adam and Eve, had sinned against him, God made a promise to them. He entered into another treaty, another covenant. And one of the terms of the covenant was that God would raise up a deliverer who would bruise or crush the head of the serpent, we're told in Genesis 3.15. The one who promised true fulfillment if we entered into a covenant with him instead of God, and yet who delivered the exact opposite and led us into a life of misery, he will be defeated, God promised. And all who enter into this new covenant with God are released from the life of misery that we sought out for ourselves, which is found in life apart from God. And we are brought into a life of true happiness. That life of happiness begins now when we hear this message of deliverance and believe it. Just as it began for the people of Jabesh in verse 9, when the message of deliverance reaches them and we're told they were glad. And just as the chapter ends, not with the sound of weeping, but with the sound of rejoicing in verse 15, so will the final chapter of our lives end with rejoicing. At the end of 1 Samuel 11, Saul returns to Gilgal and the kingdom's renewed, we're told in verse 14. Saul, as it were, had gone out and had crushed the head of the serpent. He had put King Nahash to the sword, the oppressor of God's people. And on his return, he's recognised as king, and the people rejoice. The Lord Jesus has also gone out to deliver God's people, and he crushed the head of the serpent, Satan, the great enemy of God's people, through his death on the cross. And one day he'll return... And we'll recognise him as our king. And we'll rejoice greatly. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we recognise ourselves in the people of Jabesh, seeking deliverance outside of you. Seeking for all our needs to be met in ways that are outside of you. Lord, forgive us for this. Forgive our tendency to do this so often. We thank you for the great deliverance that you have provided for us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the beginnings of this life of happiness that is ours now. And we pray that we would seek to know him delivering us continually from all of our misery. Lord, we look forward to the day when he returns, when he'll be recognised by all his people and by the whole world as your chosen king, and all your people will rejoice greatly. We thank you for this great deliverance in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. 
We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the Connect page on our website, trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.